0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hello, Trump, Inc. listeners. It's Andrea Bernstein, and we're back with the third season. Before we get into our first episode, just a note about timing. Over the next few months, we're going to be releasing stories in short bursts. So, for example, we'll have a series of episodes, say three or four weeks in a row, and then we'll take a short break before our next batch of stories. If you want to stay up to date on our latest episodes and you haven't signed up for our newsletter yet, head on over to trumpincpodcast.org and sign up. Okay, here's the story.
0: In New York City
2: today, Tom Barrick, the inaugural committee chair, visited Trump Tower to meet with the president-elect. It's that limbo period after Donald Trump's surprise win in the presidential election and before his swearing in. And Trump Tower, with its gold elevators and security dogs pacing the lobby, is the momentary center of the universe. A man appears wearing a thick winter scarf. His head is bald, his face looks kind, a reporter asks him a question. Just wondering a little tease of what we can expect for the inauguration, the balls, the, the, maybe Melania's gown, anything you can share.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the inauguration is going to be amazing. And you know, what we're doing is trying to orient it towards the, the greatest tribute
2: to America. Our story today is all about this man, Tom Barrack. He ran Donald Trump's inauguration, an event that two years later is coming under intense scrutiny for the record sums of money raised and how it was spent. Barrick has been friends with Trump for decades, and the story of how they met is an old chestnut. Barrick shared it at the Republican National Convention.
0: I was a young pup; he was a big guy in New York at the time, and he
2: wanted to buy the The year is 1988. Donald Trump is desperate to buy the Plaza Hotel across the street from Central Park. It's a landmark building he can see from the top of Trump Tower. And it happens to be for sale. And it happens that the seller is represented by Tom Barrack. Trump and Barrack get together, and Trump agrees to pay an eye-popping sum of money for the building.
0: He said, no, no contract. No contract. You and I shake hands right here. No lawyers, no contract, no nothing. You just tell me the things that I should know and how to fix it, and I'll do this deal.
2: The New York Times ran this quote from an executive familiar with the sale. Tom played Donald like a Stradivarius. Decades later, Barrick gave a different spin to Trump's supporters in the convention hall.
0: He played me like a Steinway piano.
2: The two men have remained friends.
0: It was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. He practices... An unbelievable set of disciplines. So everybody says,
1: "Okay." Now,
2: let's jump forward three decades to Trump Tower, January 2017. Barrick has made a fortune in business. His friend is heading to the White House. And he's playing maid of honor.
0: So we're going to surround it with is the soft sensuality of the place. So we have all of that, but it's in a much more poetic
2: cadence. He'll make sure everything is just right. Last question, you talk about uh, what he wanted. Tell us what he has told you he wants.
0: What are some specifics that he wants to be a part of the inauguration? He, he really wanted it to be about the people, not about him. So his instructions to me, by the way, which is the worst job in America, right? He, he gave the best job in America to all the very bright
2: guys, and he said, you be the party planner. The worst job in America. Master of a $100 million party chest, with the world's most powerful people on the invite list. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of Trump, Inc. I'm Ilya Meritz from WNYC. And I'm
3: Justin Elliott from ProPublica. Trump, Inc., of course, is a co-production of ProPublica and
2: WNYC. An open investigation in real time into the business ties that underpin the Trump presidency. A year ago, we brought you a story that asked a simple question— The inaugural committee raised nearly $107 million. What did they do with all that cash? Or, as George W. Bush's inaugural chief, Greg Jenkins, put it, So they had a third of the staff and a quarter of the events. And they raised, what, at least twice
4: as much as we did? So there's the obvious question, where did it go? I
2: don't know. No ideas? No ideas. And since Jenkins and I spoke last year… —
4: ABC News is reporting that Robert Mueller is probing right now the donations made to Trump's inaugural committee from… —
2: One key
3: inaugural official testified under oath that he might have dipped into the fund. —
2: Gates admitted to Manafort's lawyers in open court that he, quote, "...possibly wrongfully submitted personal expenses to the inaugural committee for reimbursement." A D.C. lobbyist pleaded guilty to facilitating an illegal contribution from a Ukrainian businessman and member of parliament. Sam
4: Patton
3: admitting to arranging an illegal foreign donation to Donald Trump's inauguration. Then, last December... Tonight
4: we're learning how a lot of that money went right into the pockets of the Trump family business. Here's what we
3: we know, at ProPublica so and WNYC broke some news
2: ourselves.
4: ProPublica have uncovered evidence that Ivanka Trump ...played a role in how hotels were booked for the inauguration and possibly...
2: Next, the inaugural committee came directly under investigation. Federal prosecutors in New York issuing a wide-ranging subpoena for documents and records on how... ...a
1: laundry list of potential of crimes, were conspiracy against the U.S., false statements, mail fraud... So whether ...people
4: from the Middle Eastern countries, including Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, used straw donors to disguise contributions.
2: The Trump administration has attracted people who've tried to profit from government connections. Think Michael Cohen or Michael Flynn. Now, with a federal investigation of the inaugural committee, it looks as if that pattern may have been set even before Trump took the oath. That brings us to the man in charge of the celebrations in January 2017, Tom Barrack. Stylistically, he could not be more different from the president. Trump's thing is braggadocio and exaggeration. Barrick can be almost comically self-effacing. All of the
0: really smart, intelligent people are in the transition taking jobs, <laughs> worrying about trade,
2: finance, nuclear disaster, and I am the master party plan. <laughs> I mean, there's so this much- is a man who Fortune magazine, on its cover, once called the world's greatest real estate investor, he oversees a company called Colony Capital with $44 billion of assets under management. He's in hotels, offices, and warehouses. A word he uses a lot is opportunistic. But you have to be opportunistic. Even if Barrick took the job of inaugural chairman simply as a favor for a friend, he still had something to gain.
4: Barrick gets substantial
2: financing and
4: does a lot of deals
2: with Middle East countries. This is ProPublica's Peter Elkind.
4: The perception and reality of his having influence with government policy is something that that matters deeply to all the Middle Eastern states, sovereign wealth funds, investors, who are a really important part of of funding what Barrack does.
3: We found a confidential memo that shows that Colony Capital, this global finance and real estate firm, had a well-developed plan to profit from its connections in Trump's Washington right
2: from the start. One note on this story. People who worked the inauguration were covered by a confidentiality clause. So if you're wondering, why am I not hearing the voices of the people who made this party happen? That's one reason. Justin's going to rejoin the story in a little bit. Tom Barrick is 71 years old. He surfs, plays polo, and received the French Legion of Honor for his skills as a vintner. If
0: you look at the vine, the the vine itself is capable at every level of growing these kind of berries.
2: And he sometimes gives out these little laminated cards to people he meets with his 20 rules for success. Number nine, always be nice to the invisible people. Number 15, take care of others and the universe will take care of you. Even angry Tom Barrack doesn't really sound mad.
1: You're one of the few people in the business world that is really supporting very publicly you know, Donald Trump. Why?
0: I, as a user of the system, am also angry with the system. I'm not angry at President Obama. It's really, really difficult
2: unless you have somebody who's chipping away at all of these bureaucratic pieces. His whole adult life, Tom Barrack has walked the corridors of power. His first job, straight out of law school, is for the personal lawyer to the president of the United States. The president at that time is Richard Nixon. The lawyer is named Herbert Kalmbach. He's the man who personally delivered bags full of cash to the Watergate break-in team. Kalmbach claimed he didn't know what was in the bag. Barrack doesn't stay there long. An assignment takes him next to the gas fields of Saudi Arabia, where he has a happy accident
0: I was a terrible lawyer. I knew nothing about gas but I could play racquetball. So one day, my boss comes in and says, can you play racquetball? I say, yeah, I can play racquetball. He says, well, I, there's a guy I want you to play racquetball with. He sets me up with one of the sons of the king. And
2: From this first connection with a Saudi prince, Beric spins out a web of new personal and business relationships around the Middle East, relationships that continue to this day. Is
0: there anybody in corporate America who knows the Saudis as well as you do? Oh, I'm sure there's 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 plenty of people that I started as a, a young pup.
2: While he's in the Middle East, Tom Barrack also spends time in Beirut. There, he strikes up a friendship with another young American who's also interested in business and politics, Paul Manafort. Next, Barrack travels to Haiti to negotiate an oil refinery deal with that country's dictator, Baby Doc Duvalier. In the 80s, it's on to Washington, where Barrack briefly holds a job in Ronald Reagan's Interior Department not long after that, he's called before Congress to answer some tough questions about a home loan he forgave, which some saw as questionable.
0: Thank you, Senator. I I would like to make a a brief opening statement that... The loan benefited Reagan's Reagan's
2: incoming attorney general, Ed Meese. An independent independent counsel investigates and finds no evidence Barrack was doing a favor to get a job in Washington. Barrack returns to the private sector. He founds Colony Capital, a private equity firm, And Colony thrives, buying up bad loans for cheap in the savings and loan crisis of the early 1990s. After the 2008 financial crash, he scoops up foreclosed homes by the hundreds.
4: And he's not at all reluctant to swoop in and grab something and profit on somebody's misery. You know, that's capitalism.
2: (laughs) This is Peter Elkind from ProPublica, who's researched Barrick's career with Colony Capital.
4: They're involved in financing of deals, they're involved in structuring of deals. They're really a pretty eclectic operation and reflect Barrack's personality in many ways.
2: When Michael Jackson is sinking in debt, Colony Capital buys his Neverland Ranch and makes plans for a world concert tour. Colony also helps Annie Leibovitz hang on to the rights to her photographs when her creditors come calling.
5: He's an
4: acquirer of both distressed assets and distressed people. He's really good at buying low and developing relationships with people, often at times when they're in trouble and doing big favors for them that ultimately will help him down the road.
2: On at least two occasions, Colony shows an interest in partnering with Donald Trump. Both times, the result is the same. No deal. In the 90s, Colony talks with Trump about financing for a Manhattan development called Riverside South. They pull out, and the project is built with someone else's help. In 2012, Colony lends its name to the Trump Organization's bid to renovate the old post office in Washington, D.C., There are nine other bidders. Trump beats the odds, wins the contract, and then goes somewhere else for financing, Deutsche Bank. Today, it's the Trump International Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue.
4: I think Barrick is willing to put his neck and his company on the line a little bit to help somebody out at a critical moment, even if it doesn't necessarily
2: make business sense in the short term
1: now front now, a close friend, business associate of Donald Trump, Tom Barrack, the real estate billionaire, has known Trump for more than 30 years. And
2: when Donald Trump runs for president, Barrack becomes one of the few prominent business leaders to endorse him. He goes further and recommends his old friend from Beirut days to the campaign. And Paul Manafort becomes Donald Trump's campaign chairman. Barrack raises money for the cause.
1: Today, uh, what you're calling the Real Deal Super PAC has launched. And in just a few hours, how much money? Has it raised?
2: Uh, about 32 million in, in contributions. So the pack known as Rebuilding America Now actually falls about $9 million short of that target. But with the millions Barrack raises, they produce a blizzard of ads like this one.
3: So who is all four women until she isn't? Hillary Clinton. When Bill Cosby was accused of sexual assault, Mrs. Clinton tweeted, Every survivor of sexual assault
1: deserves...
2: Right after the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Paul Manafort is forced out of the Trump campaign after his undisclosed work for a pro-Russian Ukrainian strongman is reported in the news. Barrett goes on TV. An expert, Paul Manafort is the best in the, in the business. Incredibly
0: credible, incredibly thoughtful. An amazing track record. He did the job. And, and then as politics goes, everybody gets attacked. Right? I mean, this is just, it's a, a
2: week after Donald up. Trump wins the election, he picks Tom Barrack to run his inaugural committee. He's the chairman now. People start to call him that. In the past, inaugural chiefs were often creatures of Washington. Sometimes they went on to jobs like White House chief of staff. Tom Barrack, like the man who chose him, is a wealthy outsider. What he wanted from the gig is not so clear. In Tom Barrack's world, you make money by managing other people's money. I
0: wonder what your thoughts are on uh, Colony Financial. All right, Colony Financial why? is one do
4: of these Do it
2: well, these and companies even companies more money flows opposite, your way. And you pay pay get cheered on by Jim Cramer on CNBC. Owe,
4: but I will tell you this, it's by it's run by Tom Barrack, and I think Tom Barrack is money. I'm going to recommend this guy uh, Let's let's go to uh, Brian and Devada.
2: Unlike private equity firms, where the goal is profits— with a non inaugural committee, the goal is to raise the money you need to support the mission and then close up shop. Here are the instructions President George W. Bush gave to his second inaugural planner, Greg Jenkins.
4: You don't turn on the spigots full speed ahead. You raise what you need with a 10% contingency and then live within your means, spend within your means, and then you should not have much more left over.
2: 58th Presidential Inaugural Committee, under Tom Barrack, does not adopt this thrifty attitude. On paper, they say they aim to raise $50 million. Almost 107 comes in. There are 47 $1 million checks. I've seen notes from the committee's first meetings. You can feel the participants trying to manage Trump's impulses. People say things like, make it more pageantry than just the military, or eliminate all the parts about winning. In a different meeting, according to one source, the president-elect said he wanted the kind of show they have in North Korea. For his right-hand man in the committee, running things day-to-day, Barrack turns to Rick Gates. This is the same Rick Gates who was Paul Manafort's number two in Ukraine, who worked for the Trump campaign, and who much later pleaded guilty to conspiracy and lying to the FBI in the Mueller probe. In the midst of inauguration planning, Rick Gates writes to Ivanka Trump, He's looking for a price quote on the event spaces at the Trump International Hotel in Washington. Ivanka connects Gates with the hotel's director over email. ProPublica's Justin Elliott and I got the emails and spent a lot of time reading them. The prices they
3: quote are $175,000 per day. And this was going to be for four days. And $175,000 times four is $700,000.
2: This information is forwarded to Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, an experienced New York event planner responsible for conceiving and organizing many of the parties. Wolkoff expresses her concerns to Ivanka and Gates in writing. And she essentially says, you know, this price
3: is ridiculous. She says, please take into consideration that when this is audited, it will become public knowledge that locations were also gifted.
2: Union Station, like the Trump Hotel, is a grand old space that's booked for an Inauguration Week event. Unlike the Trump Hotel, the operator of Union Station decides to donate that space for free. I called up a bunch of D.C. event planners to ask what they make of this $175,000 a day number. Their views fell on a spectrum, somewhere between, oh, that's high, and you gotta be kidding me. A spokesman for the inaugural committee confirmed to us that the number in those emails, four days for $700,000 total, that is what the committee paid. Which means
3: that the objections in this email exchange from Stephanie winston walcoff the event planner, to that $175,000 a day rate, did not win the day. The quoted $175,000 a day rate was the rate that they paid.
5: Those emails would be of great interest to the Internal Revenue Service if they were to conduct an audit.
2: This is Brett Capel. He's an attorney down in Washington who specializes in political nonprofits like the Inaugural Committee. He told us American tax laws were written to discourage the people who run nonprofits from steering money to insiders and their family members. Ivanka Trump, who helped set the price, once testified she owns 7% of the Trump Hotel. Her father and two eldest brothers own the rest. Capel says if the committee paid them above market rate,
5: well, it's a violation of the entity's tax-exempt status and the regulations that govern tax-exempt transactions. Now, that's that's just a civil violation. Now, if they uncovered evidence of a conspiracy to deliberately violate the Internal Revenue Code by charging two or three times the fair market value in order to derive an illegal profit, then you would get into the criminal side of the tax law. And those emails um, certainly are not helpful to them. In that regard,
2: a criminal violation hinges on whether the committee knowingly, deliberately overpaid and whether it can be proven. Federal prosecutors are now looking at the committee's finances, though we don't know whether tax law is part of their probe.
5: One transaction like this is not going to be enough to bring a criminal tax case. But if there's a pattern involving other transactions involving the inaugural committee, and I suspect what they're going to be doing is a forensic audit of all of the expenditures made by the Inaugural Committee to see, you know, who ultimately received the money.
2: The 58th Presidential Inaugural Committee reported to the IRS that it did not pay above-market rates to insiders.
3: We wanted to ask Barrick about this. As the guy in charge, why did you book the Trump Hotel? Were you concerned about overpaying? Barrick did not agree to an interview. His spokesman and the Inaugural Committee did not answer our questions about this. Then there's Ivanka. Her spokesman basically told us that Ivanka wanted a, quote, fair market rate for the event space in the hotel, but he wouldn't give us any evidence of that.
2: One thing is clear. The inaugural committee treated booking the Trump Hotel not as an option, but as a necessity. We know this because the committee tried to muscle out someone else who had booked the ballroom months earlier. She was pretty much the last person you'd want to give the boot.
1: Reverend Mary Turner and... I am the hostess of the Presidential Inaugural Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. It's a
2: smaller event than the National Prayer Breakfast that you may have heard about. You've been doing that since how long?
1: Uh, we began uh, hosting these in 1993 to pray for the nation in the office of the presidency.
2: In December, she started getting emails and phone calls from Rick Gates, Tom Barrick's deputy at the committee.
1: You know, wanted our space and uh, wanted the entire hotel blocked for the full week of inauguration.
2: After she politely declined, Reverend Turner heard from hotel management. They canceled her booking, invoking a common clause in contracts known as force majeure, or an act of God, like a hurricane or military invasion. In this case, they predicted civil unrest.
1: That was their excuse, which of course had no legal grounds because they had not canceled other inaugural events being held there, you know, by the Inaugural Committee. So if it was unsafe for our group, it would have also been unsafe for the Presidential Inaugural Committee or the Republican Party to have events there the entire week and Inauguration Day.
2: Reverend Turner did not back down, and days later, the hotel uncanceled her contract. And on Inauguration morning, hundreds of God-fearing men and women Ate challah and drank communion wine in the Trump Hotel ballroom. We'll be right back. We're back. And we're looking at Tom Barrack, the man who ran Donald Trump's inaugural committee. It's now Inauguration Week, with balls and lunches and a concert at the Lincoln Memorial. Thank you
5: very much, everybody. And thank you, Tom.
2: And an event that has never happened before. A 500-guest black tie gathering, the Chairman's Global Dinner. Chairman, as in Tom Barrack.
0: We have so many friends. 147 Diplomats and ambassadors. Never been done before. We've never
2: had that. The entire foreign diplomatic corps is invited, plus top-dollar donors. And there's a separate guest list of over 100 people invited by the chairman, including ambassadors and foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates.
0: Oh, I know how safe this room is. Boy, oh, boy. This is one, this place is surrounded tonight. But I want to thank you all for being here. We have great respect for your countries. We have great respect for our
2: world. Just a short snippet of video is all that was released to the public. But for 500 people who mattered, Tom Barrack's closeness to his friend, the incoming president of the United States of America, is on vivid display. As a troupe of Las Vegas dancers, Steve Wynn's showstoppers, pivot and twirl on a purpose-built stage that cost close to $3 million, paid for by the committee. The tax return of the nonprofit 58th Presidential Inaugural Committee gives this mission statement — to promote the social welfare by supporting the inaugural activities of the president-elect and vice — it cuts off there. But what was Tom Barrack's mission statement? If he thought it was the worst job in the world, why did he take it? Justin and I found a clue.
3: This is an eight-page strategic plan for Colony It's dated February
2: 2017, and it's on Colony letterhead. Labeled private and confidential. And let me restate that date, February 2017, right after the inauguration.
3: What I found so interesting about this memo is that it seems to represent Colony hatching a plan to profit off its access to the Trump administration and... It's access to all of these foreigners who were
2: in town for the inaugural events. The memo talks about setting up a D.C. office with a White House liaison and a public affairs team. Quote, tie into international bilateral meetings already occurring with key members of the Trump administration. This would include taking a leadership role in forming the events, the participants and the agenda.
3: They seem to be envisioning a sort of form of soft lobbying They actually say explicitly in here, We want to establish this brand, but we want to do it without the appearance of actually lobbying, which sort of suggests that they they were going to be lobbying. They just didn't want to look like they were lobbying. Yeah. Um, And, you know, another thing about Colony is one of the ways they make money is by investors giving them money to manage, and they make fees off that. So I think sort of the subtext here is that, If they position themselves as sort of gatekeepers to the Trump administration, that's only going to be good for
2: their investment business and for sort of potential inflows from foreigners. We asked Colony about this document. Here's their statement. This memo was simply an outline of a proposed potential business plan, which was never acted upon or implemented. Colony at no time has maintained a D.C. office.
3: There is one thing that we do know, which is that we have calendars from... Steve Mnuchin, Donald Trump's Secretary of Treasury, that show in the weeks and months after this memo was written, Tom Barrack and Rick Gates, who was a colony consultant at the time, were having a series of meetings with Secretary Mnuchin, one of which included a bunch of ambassadors from Middle Eastern countries like Qatar and UAE
2: at a fancy restaurant in the Georgetown neighborhood of Washington. It was in a private space called the Mermaid Room with seven ambassadors. A barracks spokesman told us, quote, Tom has meetings with Mnuchin all the time, before, during, and since the election, end quote. And so you look at that calendar event, we don't really
3: know what was discussed there, but it looks a lot like what they're describing in this memo, which is putting Colony in between meetings of the Trump administration and foreign officials. So one big question is, was Colony somehow trying to
2: profit from those meetings, and we don't really know what was discussed, and they wouldn't
3: tell us, frankly.
2: We do know that around this time, Barrick was promoting a private company's plan to export U.S. nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. He discussed leading a White House initiative in the Middle East. And Barrack told our ProPublica colleague, Isaac Arnsdorf, that he considered buying a stake in Westinghouse, the only American manufacturer of large-scale nuclear reactors. Whistleblowers raised concerns about the nuclear plan, and the House Oversight Committee is investigating. Since Trump took office, more than $7 billion has flowed into Colony Capital's investment funds, a quarter of that from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. We started our reporting with a question Where did all that inaugural cash go? We found some answers, the Trump organization was paid, which led to bigger, more troubling questions. Did the inaugural committee break the law? Were people taking part in this cash bonanza to benefit themselves and buy access? Now, federal prosecutors in New York have opened a criminal probe that's separate from the Mueller investigation. They've subpoenaed documents, and it's Tom Barrick and lawyers for the inaugural committee who have to respond. In the past, presidential inaugurations got maybe one line in the history books. Two years out, this one keeps making news. As you know, we love tips. Tell us what you know about the inaugural committee, Colony Capital, or Tom Barrack's relationship with Donald Trump. Find out how to share information securely at trumpincpodcast.org, and while you're there, sign up for our newsletter. This week, we have Tom Barrack's tips for success. And one update. In an earlier version, we overstated the fundraising target of the inaugural committee. In state-level filings, the committee said it aimed to raise $50 million. Coming up on Trump Inc., the room where it happens—the lobby of the Trump International Hotel in Washington D.C. What do you think of it? Uh, it's luxurious. Is that what Trump would say? Huge. It's big. It's—I uh, like it. We go there. This episode was produced by Katherine Sullivan. The senior producer of Trump Inc. is Meg Kramer. Bill Moss is the technical director. Charlie Herman and Eric Umansky are the editors. A special thanks this episode to ProPublica's Peter Alkind, Nick Varshaver, Jake Pearson, Jesse Eisinger, and Isaac Arnstorff. Thanks also to Aaron Glantz, senior reporter at Reveal. Robin Fields is ProPublica's managing editor. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. Steve Engelberg is the editor-in-chief at ProPublica. Original music composed by Hannes Brown.
0: What do you say to somebody who looks at this and says, that guy Tom Barrick, he's raising polo ponies, he's growing wine, but he's not doing it for a living. He's just a rich dilettante. What do you say to that person? I say, come and live with me for a week. If you can keep up with me doing what I do to make a living for a week, you can then be here and think that you're a rich dilettante.